Welcome to The Five, a podcast built to inform nonprofits about critical functions that will improve their organization. I'm your host, Eric Morcheski, CEO and co-founder of Nimble Strategies. We are bringing The Five to you as a part of our company's five-year anniversary celebration with thought leaders from across the country. Welcome to The Five. Today, I'm here with a good friend of mine, Dion Brown, the executive director of the National Museum of African American Music. We're here today to talk about transitional leadership. Dion, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell people a little bit about your background and how you ended up in this role as executive director of the, the National Museum of African American Music? Absolutely, Eric. Thanks for even considering me to be on your program. I think it's ingenious of you and Nimble Strategies to do this. Uh, my background, I've been doing museums uh, work since 2005. I've been the president of several different institutions, formerly employee at Nimble Strategies, where I helped Eric. He had already came up with a concept and he was doing well. And Eric and I worked when I was the president of the National Blues Museum in St. Louis, and we did great work. And once he ventured out for Nimble Strategies, I thought I was retiring from the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. And Eric and I talked and he asked me to join his company. And we did. And we had did some great work with different organizations, different nonprofits. So after two and a half years of working with Eric as a semi-retired museum professional, uh, the president of, at that time, of the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville called saying that his board chair needed help, needed a seasoned museum professional to run the museum while he was the face in fundraising. After going back and forth and, of course, talking to Eric about the pros and cons I decided to accept the position for 15 months. During that time, operationally, we really started bringing it together. There were some pitfalls because at that time, I'm still the COO versus the president. So I had to respect that position, but still try and make change internally. In August, he decided to move on to another position. And the board asked me to step in to take over the president's job. And uh, after some thought process, and talking to Eric, talking to those who's close to me, I decided to go ahead and accept the position as the, they thought president, but I accepted the title of executive director. This is a great background because obviously, even in what you've just shared, you've talked a little bit about why you have some background in transitional leadership. So I really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about the National Museum of African American Music. It's, it's obviously a newer museum in the, across the landscape of our country. Tell us a little bit about what it is and how it's doing. Uh, thanks, Eric. Yeah, the museum is National Museum of African American Music is located in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. It's very significant, and I hope I get a chance to talk about it. But it's located on the corner of Fifth and Broadway. Uh, it's downtown, busy. It's the honky tonk street. It's doing very well. Unfortunately, the museum had geared up for a strong opening, but the pandemic happened. The museum actually opened during the pandemic towards the tail end in January of 21. And with time ticking like so many people across the country. So that all that momentum they had going up to it, they lost it because during the pandemic, the excitement left. Everybody was worried about the pandemic. So then it opened in January 21, as I said, it's doing very well. This is part of the problem here with museums. I'm, I'm a sidetrack. The president at that time, in November of 18, as he's building out, he's a colleague, 
He used to call me. He called me Thanksgiving of November 18 and said, hey, Dion, we got our feasibility study back. And I said, okay, Henry, be careful. How many people did they tell you? They said 600,000. I said, Henry, you will never do 600,000. That feasibility was taking the statistics of what the Frisk Museum, the Country Music Hall of Fame Museum, taking all these other ones, projecting what they would do. I'm not knocking the feasibility study. I'm saying I'm giving background on how they did it. I said, Henry, you will never do 600,000 people. He said, well, the low end is 400,000. I said, you will not see 400,000. I said, Henry, whatever that number, take 400,000, do one third of it. Whatever a third of that number is will be your attendance. If I'm not mistaken, one third of 400,000 is 135,000 people. National Museum of African-American Music does 135,000 people. That comes from experience because as we'll get to talk about transitional leadership, it's the standard everywhere I go. These organizations build their budgets off of a feasibility study and they get themselves in trouble immediately because even myself, when I opened the National Blues Museum here in St. Louis, they told me 100,000. I built my budget off of 35,000. Guess what our year number one was in attendance? 35,000. And what I did, I did it in reverse order. So I built the staff up to match that number, 35,000 people. These other institutions, they do it in reverse and they'll build it off of 400,000 people. And the feasibility study says you need 171 people. After year one, you see you're not meeting those numbers. So now here comes all the layoffs. And what it looks like is that institution is doing bad and they're not, they just over budgeted. And then you come in, by the time I get there, it's still too heavy and it's all about right sizing. So, but the National Museum of African-American Music, they are, they're churning. It has so much potential as far as attendance. We have people just like most national museums, you get people from all over the country coming. But what's important to me here is that 135, 140,000, Normally, that's your peak on year one. And then each year you go incrementally down. We did 132,000 in 2022. There is so much potential. I think the number really is more like 175 to 200. With the programming, our traveling exhibit, the amount of support we get, we're building out uh, uh, through a generous gift from the Lilly Foundation, we're building a 2.5 million Fist Jubilee exhibit. That's going to be huge for us. One, the Fist Jubilee comes out of Nashville, obviously. But then because of this grant, we're able to travel it throughout the southeast to every HBCU. Anybody that take it for free because Lily is paying for them to receive. So now you're getting our name out on the road. You're out there marking us with our product to draw people back to us. So I think that's just one. We're in the works with a very... A-list artist that we're considering turning one of our exhibits over specifically to this individual. The name of this person, if we finalize that, that name alone will increase our attendance by 50,000 people. There's a lot of potential. I've loved getting to see the exhibits and it's a beautiful space. I, I also love what you're, you're saying about the feasibility studies tend to overpromise and create an under delivery 
that really isn't the fault of the museum itself as much as it's a feasibility study that someone put a, a number on paper and, and that created an issue. Our season's president, executive directors, founders, we had to be cognizant of that because if not, you will get yourself in financial trouble very quickly. And that's why I've built a career because they misread, <laughs> they misread those feasibility studies. And so with, with that said, it's a good transition. So we're here today to talk about transitional leadership. Why does transitional leadership mean something to you? You know, why is that important? Obviously, there are plenty of museums that you could have gone to work at that would have been more status quo, but you, you've chosen some projects that are either new builds or in transition. Why is this important to you? Why, why does this really play to your talents and, and why do you enjoy it most days? <laughs> Great question. I'll ask myself, why do I keep getting into these transitional uh, leadership positions, EDs, presidents? I, I can't say I love it. It's a passion. It's a gift of God that he has given to me to be a realist, a conservative, and just an operational guy, Eric, quite honestly. My thrill comes in and my passion, what I've learned over these 20 years, Eric, is writing a wrong. It is very hard for a nonprofit as it is. I am blessed to be able to see things differently, a pragmatic approach, and can go in. It goes back to the military, Eric. I've been fixing organizations. I don't take that as a, a braggadocious term. In the military, Eric, I was moved from, I moved seven times in 21 years to different locations. And each time I kept getting a reputation if you need this organization department fixed, he's your guy. That translated over into now my second career. And I'm able to see things in a different light. I, I don't know how to explain, but my passion is African-American museums or helping anybody. First and foremost, helping people. I am blessed to be able to go in these organizations, help them see it through a different lens, bring them from the red to the black, and, and Eric, this is not a braggadocious, we'll get into this. It generally takes me one year to turn an organization around. And it's not me, it's the team. We'll talk about that. It's the team that you build it would actually turns it around. We're able to, I've been at these four or five institutions. And within a year, we're on the right path. By year two, we're churning. And year three, it's taken off. So it's a passion that I have, Eric, to right or wrong. Or, or to help people achieve what they really set out for these institutions to do. And I take great pride and it's become a passion. So even working with Nimble Strategies, when we work with nonprofits here, same passion. When consulting, when we help the American Black Holocaust Museum because of your leadership, well, we were able to go in there, help them land a $10 million unrestricted gift air. There, there is so much pride and joy knowing from behind the scenes you and I, Nimble Strategies, we were able to help that institution achieve the dream that the founder wanted. And that's what's most important to me, Eric. I think my my version of it is probably <laughs> simpler, uh, pared down, but I just, I like fixing problems. Yes. Right? I, I mean, that's, that's what, what it comes down to, Eric. I, I enjoy fixing problems. I think yours sounded much nicer than mine. You know, you, you enjoy helping people. You And I know you do because of all that you do beyond just work and, and all the volunteer work that you do and, and everything is you do enjoy helping people. 
Um, mine comes down to, you know, very much, I just enjoy solving problems. And so that's- But, but think about it, Eric, you're saying the exact same thing. I may have said it different. Mm -hmm. It's fixing things. That's all. And once it's fixed there, there comes the burnout. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, with with all this said, then let's talk about the five of transitional leadership. So we've, we've talked a little bit here. There, in your mind, are kind of five key points towards that transitional leadership and making sure that transitional leadership is successful, especially starting out in that year one that plays a role for you. Um, you talked about that you feel like you have a good playbook that can turn a turn a museum around within a year. Let's start with let's start with number one. How do you get started in transitional leadership? I start the process out in my transition, Eric, and when I go into an institution, is I meet with every staff member. The staff is your number one. So I go in and I, I don't care how many employees it is, it could be anywhere from 20 to 55. And I interview each and every one of them for 30 minutes or whatnot. But at the same time, you're still doing your daily business and I should back up here. It is staff, so I'm doing those interviews, but at the same time, when you go in these institutions, what I have in my career, you have a staff problem, you have a community perception problem, and you have a board problem, all at different levels. You as an ED president, as the leader, you have to go in there and tackle all of them simultaneously. So I'm gonna break it down to the staff first and we'll talk about some of the others. So with the staff, you're evaluating the talents, seeing what they're there for, what their job is, see if they clearly understand their job. You're evaluating. And so for the first 90 days, I'm just interviewing and observing them. After the 90 days comes the restructuring, reorganizing if needed, reshaping the organization. You do that. Not day 90 to 180 is when the restructure comes. 180 forward to the end of the year, people are starting to buy into your vision, where you're going. So now you have the team in place at the six month point that you want. Those who remain buy into it, those who don't, is because they get a better opportunity or they say this isn't a good fit. But those are that's the team I want at the six month point. And over time, you see your programmatic changes. You see the change in the community. You see your change in the board. They're buying in. So by the end of that first year, you're ready. You're, you, you have started. You have reset the clock to a new organization. And, and for the leaders that's out there that's doing this transition, be very careful. I have been to every institution when they hire me. They say, person one, two, three, four, they all need to be fired. And I don't take that approach. I tell them, if you want them gone, you do it before I get there. Because everybody has a clean slate. It could be a management problem. It could be a personnel problem. It could be anything. I believe in everybody that's hired can do their job. It's up to them to show if they can. So my advice to people is do your evaluation period and don't go into organization because the prior leadership wouldn't fire them or the board wouldn't fire them make your own evaluation because you could lose some very valuable talent. We've talked about that even in an interim role of, you know, it's not fair to saddle an executive director and tell them, you know, you need to remove these people, get it done beforehand, and then transition them into a clean slate. Right. Uh, and I think that's a really important topic on there. I also think that staff development is so critical 
And two things kind of come to mind when I hear that is one being that with staff development, as nonprofits, historically, we have underpaid our staff. We have, you know, asked for extra hours. We've we've done everything that most people would say at a for-profit piss off. Um, that was my nice way of saying it. Um, and That's a good way of saying it. I'm being clean. This is the clean yeah. version. <laughs> and so, you know, what they fail to realize is, yeah, people are there because they believe in the mission, but that doesn't mean, how can you say you're here for community good if you're not taking care of the internal first? And exactly. I think that's what you're ultimately saying is, well, yeah, you are going to look at the board and you are going to look at the staff and the community and everyone else. If you don't conquer internal, you'll never get to the external. Eric, um, that's why I love you. See how well you said that? That's ex You are my best interpreter. You got that. <laughs> you know, so I, I think the other point that I was going to make is I just saw a stat recently a couple of weeks ago that said, if the COO does not align to the mission of the organization to keep them there you have to pay 40 percent more and it's a trickle-down effect right that just because they're talking about the coo doesn't mean that that apply doesn't apply to everyone yep. and so if you're trying to align a mission and align the staff that first six months that you just talked about is that period of figuring out who does align to the mission to move it forward you and got so it eric you you <laughs> hey that's the secret sauce right there my man so I think I think you made some really good points there and they really align nicely to stuff I've, I've recently heard or talked about. So I thought I would highlight those. Eric, I have to say something about that. I agree a thousand percent with you. But when you start talking about the staffing and the pay, do not go into this line of work thinking you're going to get rich. It has to be a passion. By the time an individual comes to work at a nonprofit, they have what I call went through a sift. So if you're in, unless it's museum specific positions, if you're in marketing, there's a good chance if money is driving you, you had a fortune 500 person. And if you come through that sifter, then you at the largest, any company, and then you get to the largest nonprofit, you're trickling down. So by the time some nonprofits get people, they're great people. They're either burnt out from corporate world or they're trying to build their resume and you as a leader have to understand you're grooming somebody for the next position. Now, how can I maximize those two years that you're going to have, which I also go back to my mentor who really saw something in me to even put me on this path to becoming a CEO or president is Alberto Maloney. He said, Dion, the key, because you can't afford everybody. So what you do is you have to have a small well-paid staff so meaning they may do two or three functions but they're saving you so you pad their pay or you pay them more where you have to be careful and i was a victim of it when i was coming up through the ranks alberto i was an hr manager he says dion i need you to take over the cafe make it profitable or i'm a close i i was able to figure it out we became very successful in year one he then says, okay, I want you to take over this department. I want you to absorb the store. I'm firing. I'm replacing my current VP of operations, and I'm going to have you a director of earned income. Here comes the mistake. I knew how much money that VP was making. 
I wanted his pay paid on top of mine since I was doing his job. I'm telling your audience, Eric, do not think that way. It, that's not how this thing works. And I, I was ticked off with it because I wanted that money. I thought I was undervalued. But the bigger picture is that's how you become sustainable and people have to buy it. Everybody won't buy into it. Those are the people that's not right for this position at this time. It's all, that, that's what I'm really getting at is that the key of balancing out is having a small, well-paid staff that's very, when I'm interviewing people here, I'm not, you're already at the table for the position you are. My interview is to find out what other talents you have, thinking that I may need to tap into that at some point. For sure in a nonprofit, I've talked about it in several of our other uh, interviews we've done for the five. You know, you do have to wear many hats and you get, that's always my concern when someone comes from large organization to small organization, whether it's for-profit or nonprofit, large organizations tend to have enough staff to do all of the different functions individually. When you come into a, especially a smaller nonprofit, you do have to wear those multiple hats and are you going to be able to make that transition? So I think that's part of that assessment process that needs to be made at all times too. My, my observation of NAMAM from day one, mm -hmm because of that feasibility study, they'll hire somebody to sharpen the pencil. They'll hire somebody to take that pencil out the sharpener. Then they'll hire somebody to dunk the shavings. That's really one role. So when you remove that person who dumps the, the, the casings, the other two, the person who put the pencil in or the person who took the pencil out, feel like you're killing me, you're overworking me. Mm -hmm. Now you take away the person who pulled the pencil out. And now all you're left with is the person who put the pencil in. Oh, that leader doesn't know what they're doing. They're overworking us. I'm just saying that to your listeners. I know that may be a bad analogy, but keep in mind, when you're right shaping an organization, you're going to get pushback from the staff that they're overworked and they deserve more money. You know, so after, as you're looking through staff development, you talked about the board. What what are you kind of looking at with the board development then? Board development, uh, when I'm looking at board development, when I go into an organization here, I'm looking at the makeup of it. Do they have the right people? I'm looking at where the problems were. I'm looking at the bylaws. The most important thing for a transitional leader is set the boundaries up front during the interview process. As I was, me and you've talked several times there, they may be there interviewing me, but I'm there to interview the board chair. So after I get done talking, I wanna know how long much time you have left on your term. And if you're the one I'm working with, then it's up to me to decide if I can work with that board chair because you as a transitional leader in an organization that's in the red, you gotta know you can trust this person, not that, they say yes and agree, but you got to know you can talk to this person and they have your back and going to support you. Because if you don't, what you will find because of a transitional leader, they got you there because they're in trouble. So now they get a new leader. The things they couldn't do to the last CEO, they want to push that agenda on you. And what you will find yourself is you can't accomplish what you want. Because the board is trying to push their agenda, and that is not the board's role. 
So you as a transitional leader has to be strong in your convictions. You have to have that vision and pass it on to the board and educate them. Then you also have to make sure if the board isn't built the way you see it, you need to start working with your board chair, communicating with them of the makeup of the board. Some boards allow me the opportunity to help have input. Sometimes they just take my recommendations. But it is very important to have a board there, not just there. As they broke it down to me, your board should be doers, donors, and door openers. And if your board doesn't do that, they need to be doing at least one of the three. Preferably, they're doing all three. And if they're not doing it, you need to be able to communicate that with your board chair and have them work it from the board level to help reshape that board. So that's what I mean by board development. You as a seasoned expert should be teaching them, even though these are volunteers that come from very, you know, various backgrounds, they have their daytime jobs. You're there to make their job. So they're just governance and you have to hold them accountable for that. Otherwise they will creep over into your operations. And now you're fighting the staff and the board. So that's my advice on that. Yeah. I think one thing that's in there that you touched on a little bit, but Step one is building that relationship with that board chair, right? Because if you don't have that relationship to the board chair, it's going to be difficult to keep that transition progressing and that relationship progressing with the board because you don't have their leadership on your side or not that they have to agree, not that they have to agree with you on everything, but they do have to have a respect in a relationship together with you. Because at the end of the day, you're running the staff. The board chair is guiding the board. That's two different areas, as you and your listeners know. You have to be in sync with one another. And we've run into a number of executive directors who fail to understand this. But as an executive director, CEO, whatever the title is, you serve at the leisure of the board. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Have- so many presidents, because of boards, mm-hmm. and this is why I have a job. The board think they work for that president and they give them carte blanche. Then they get in trouble and then they say, oh, I didn't know. Well, then you, my friend, has failed as a board member. Mm -hmm. I sit on boards, Eric, just like you. If I join any organization, it's because I believe in it. If I believe in it, then I'm going to put my work in or I'm not going to belong to it. I'm not trying to fill out a resume. I'm not trying to say I'm a part of this. I believe in what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's uh, hopefully why most people are there. Occasionally you do get someone trying to fill in a resume or make some certain connections and it's not really the right reason for them to be there. Sometimes they can still be very beneficial to the board though. Ultimately, you want people there that are, are driven by the mission and want to be there. And if you can kind of go through that, I think that's a really good place to make sure your board is at in those first 180 days. I think the other thing that I would look at if I'm coming into an organization is the tenure. We've seen several of the nonprofits we work with, with board members that have been on a, on the board for 30 years, 40 yes. years, and that's too long. Um, and so sometimes you do have to recommend some term limits um, and the number of terms that they can potentially be in because it's just not, you're not getting fresh ideas. You're not getting really community and belief behind something if it's the same board for long periods of time like that. 
Eric, on that board development, and this, this, I, I'm, I'm really serious about this, Eric, and you know how I feel about it. As a top person in a nonprofit, you have to be able to say no. You have to, Eric. You have to be able to say no with good reason. And there's a way to say it, Eric. I can tell you in one institution, there was a board member who had gave substantial amount of money. The board wouldn't say no to them. And so it really became their institution because of the generous donations. That person, the donor didn't realize, that board member didn't realize what was happening. And I remember sitting in my office one time and I told him no. The look on his face, Eric, it, it, it was something else. And to the point, this person actually decided to resign. He came back to the board and he told me, he said, Dion, in my whole life, nobody has never told me no. So I say that to your executive directors or your top people in the organization. Sometimes it's hard. But when you say no, even in this person's case, I said, can't do it now. Great idea. But hold on. Perhaps that's something we put on the shelf and we come back to it. Because what will happen, you'll find yourself, and this isn't the conversation, but you know what it is. You'll find yourself doing mission creep. Mm -hmm. You're all over the place. You're all over the place. So you have to take care of your staff. You got to stay true to the mission. And it's hard sometimes, but it's something that you as a leader has to be able to do. And that has happened to me at every institution. I had to make that hard note. So I think your your story here transitions nicely in the fact that we're not here as a nonprofit because of an individual or a small group of individuals. A nonprofit, by its definition, is here for the community good. Exactly. Um, so you talked about community development and community relations kind of being that third third leg of the stool when you're first coming in. What is that? What does that look like to you? How do you how do you make sure that that engagement goes well? The first uh, on the community relationships, Eric, and I'm only speaking, this whole conversation is on transitional. Normally, by the time I show up, the community has lost faith in the institution and the donors have, donors are part of the community. Donors have, some donors have lost that connection and just stopped giving without going way into it. So what I do, Eric, is my first 90 days, I'm in front of every donor society. I'm meeting with donors one-on-one. -on -one. I want those, the community and donors as a whole to understand Dion, my vision, how I am. And what has happened, unanimous at every institution, I'm the polar opposite of the prior leader. I've had donors come back and says, now that that person is gone, how much do you need? And it doesn't happen immediately, but the more work you do, the more they see the words you say and you follow up. Now they believe I've had a, uh, recently someone says the only reason why we're re-engaging now is because of Dion's leadership. I've been in places where in a community where they said, well, Dion, I don't have a lot of money. How much do you want? And I told them, I'm not here for your money. I'm here to get to know you. Matter of fact, what can I do for you? What can this museum do for you? And I'll see if we can do it. They sat back in their chair and said, nobody's never asked me that. Because sometimes as leaders, we think it's all about us. 
we're in the non, as you said, Eric, we're in the nonprofit business. I go out into the community and see what they want, mm -hmm. then see if it lines with what we can. And that's now you have a partnership versus a trend. Because otherwise, it would have just been a transaction. Deion, how much money you want? Here, go away. I know you're going to come ask. I know I'm on your hit list. And I know they're thinking that. So I do just the opposite, Eric. Um, yeah, it, it's fun. And then I, I love people, Eric. So I get a chance to meet the the very philanthropic community. I get to meet the local community. Whatever level you are, that's where I level I'm at. And I've met some incredible, incredible people just being who God made me to be, man. And it works. It's no trickery. So, but the community, Eric, I've worked at all basically national museums. People get caught up that you're a national museum. But if we're in Nashville, where's Nashville at? In St. Louis, where's St. Louis at? So what I do, my attempt to connect back to the community is I create a space inside the museum for the community. At the National Museum of African-American Music, we have 57,000 square feet. We have a lobby, literally an exhibit in our lobby cases. Every quarter, we honor a Nashvillian. What that does, Eric, is people who would never come to the museum will come and see their friend being honored in that museum. And Nashville, and see, this is what happens also, Eric. Normally, I'm the only one with museum background experience. Everybody else is just doing their job. If you were led the wrong way, you keep on doing it that way because that's what they knew. So now you get a professional, a museum professional that comes from that background and you know how it works. I, I challenged my staff back in August when I took over and I said, I want to get with every church possible. And I want to tell them that moving forward on Sundays, you will get in you, your church, your congregations, any denomination gets in for half price. They never work in a museum. They said, okay, who's the largest church? Who has the best congregation to draw the money from? They took it thinking I wanted the money. I didn't want the money. I wanted the people. So they come in there and they see this museum, downtown Nashville, beautiful. I want to be a part of that. They will contact me. They all of a sudden will look at our webpage and see the programming we're doing. They want to be a part of it. They'll call me. So it's really about getting that foot traffic, getting your name out there. We have sections in our stores. Every store I've, museum I've had, I have a section dedicated to that city. So when tourists comes in, they're taking a piece of that city. Now you create a relationship within the city because my merchandise is at that museum. They become your marketing in the community when people say, oh, I don't go to that museum because they're trash. No, they're really, really good. They have my merchandise in there. So they start telling it. You know, it's, it's all friendship building. And I'll leave that one alone. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that's really critical there is you do have to start with having a leadership plan as that leader because you can't go out into the community and just talk, right? You have to kind of be able to walk them through a vision. And then what happens out of that is they can see themselves in that vision. Uh, and I think that's really critical. But if you don't have that vision to start and you're not able to clearly explain that to someone, it becomes very difficult then for someone to really get supportive of it. And supportive doesn't necessarily mean writing the big checks, as you said. It can also just mean showing up telling other people about it, being a part of the organization. Um, the other thing that I think came to mind as you started to talk through that is at one point I saw a statistic that 
local attendance makes up something like 90% of attendance at a park. 90% of attendance comes within three miles of living from that park. And so often, especially on, on museums labeled as national or international, they think all our, look at all the tourism we're going to bring in. And those are good things. There's great things for a city like Nashville or a city like St. Louis to bring in those tourists. But you can't forget about your own backyard before you move into all of those other people coming in. Eric, you, you hit on something because, and I agree hundred percent, but this part about it's a national museum and you're going to get all these na international and national travelers. That is a mistake for nonprofits to think they can market to the national community. That is the CVC's job. That is the tourism department. Your job is to have the product when they get there. By being a national museum in whatever city you are in, the CVC is the one that's going to promote you. They have the, the machine behind them. When you think your budget will allow you to go into different markets on a nonprofit, if your budget is $5 million, $10 million, and you're running a 50% on employee, on staff and benefits, whatnot, that only leaves so much money. My point is boards at every last one of my national museums have said, how do we market in different markets? And they don't like my answer, but the CVC or the convention in Vero Borough or center or whatever the city calls it, that is their job. They will build the collateral pieces when they go to comp. They, they do that for you. A very well-known who helped this particular city immensely went to a museum and said, quit trying to spend your, they were on the board actually, quit spending your money. That's our job. You, you take care of them when they get here. But here comes some more board development. You got to get that to your board because you got people on your board that's nationally, and they will say, "Hey, I don't see anything in my city." Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying that's a that's a reality that part of board development you have to do, and really with your marketing chair on the board because that's who's going to drive it. In the beauty of today versus when your career started many, many years ago, <laughs> is, is we have data, right? We have statistics that can tell us, here's where all our members live, you know? Yep. And so membership is a great example because your members are hopefully returning three, four, five times in a year. Maybe they're not all, but on average, maybe two, three, four, whatever it might be. The only people who are returning regularly are people who live there. And so that's that tends to be a membership program benefit is to be able to go visit the museum regularly. You can look at your ticket sales and look at where people are from. And more than likely, if you really are doing that deep dive into it, you're finding that the majority of those people that are coming to your museum for memberships for visitation are local. And likewise, so are your donors. You might get big gifts from a national organization, especially on the corporate side. But those are going to be more the one-offs than the, here's how we build an annual plan. So uh, let's take that kind of into that next step. The next step for you, you, we've talked about financials. What are you looking at for financials? I mean, besides everything that I just brilliantly said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Eric, numbers I love. I, and I'm saying this with all honesty. I don't do it as well as a trained number person. Somebody like you, you can do analytics like no other. I, I love you for it, Eric. You've shown me so much. What I do 
those first 90 days to I look for waste. Eric and one museum, Eric, you tell me how and your listeners tell me how I get there. And three months later, I have to have a budget. Now, I don't know anything about, on day one. I have to look at the financials and start working on a, formulating a new budget. First thing I did, Eric, I cut one. You tell me how, knowing nothing about operations, I find $1.8 million to cut. The board was crazy. They said, how in the hell did you do this? Because you board members aren't asking the right questions. I can make a budget, a $10 million budget, or I can make it a $1 million budget. But you have to know what you're doing. And I thank God for people working with people like you, Eric, Alberto Maloney, the gift of God to make me see numbers and see through them. Because you, Eric, you know you can make a number say any story you wanted to say. So what I do is I go in there with a fresh set of eyes and doing this long enough, Eric, you know where the you know where the money is as far as your expenses. So I didn't mess with one number they had on the revenue side. I focused on the expenses. And I was able to uh, identify that because what I'm in there to do is write the ship and try and get us from red to black or I fail. Some would say you're already in the red, so you can't fail. Well, failure is not an option. So I've looked at the financials before I even get to an institution. I've studied them. I've asked the questions. So when I get there, I'm asking all the probing questions. And it's amazing, Eric, with the personnel at each one of these institutions. They know it's waste in there. Eric, at one institution, they were spending $50,000 a year overseas with no ROI. Guess what got cut? It was a vacation for them. It was another national museum. It's gone. So one and see, so even in this institution, I use National Museum of African American Music. What I call I'm doing right now is flatlining. Let's cut this thing to the bare minimum that makes us operational. As far as expenses, once we get a flat line and a baseline, now let's start plussing back up. I mean, you spend on the necessities that you have to do to make the museum function. But a lot of this waste, or maybe waste is the wrong word here, the misuse of the funds or the target of what we're trying to accomplish. That's what I look at here. And once you flatline, now you got a better vision now you see where the money is going and now you build it back up to where that budget was. But right now, no, I'm very particular on what's spent, how it's spent, where it's spent. There could be, you can look at some certain programs there. If there's not a value to the community, from the community, from the marketing, you just don't do them anymore. Some things you do because you have to do, but some things we're doing, there is no reason to do them. And each leader is going to feel differently. You have to make it match with you on the goals where you're trying to get to financially. And that's an individual leader's choice there. Too often, I think organizations look at, well, that's what we did last year. So let's just increase the number by a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, or as a staff member, you say, well, if I, if I don't just spend this this year, then I'm not going to get it in my budget next year. And so you've got departments using budgets that they don't really need to use, but they're using it just for the sake of, keeping it within their budgets for the next year. And I think it happens way too often and, and way more than we realize, even within smaller organizations, people think of it as like a federal government level type of spending, but it happens everywhere. Uh, and it's not always consciously, sometimes 
people are like, well, I was supposed to do this this year, so I better go do it. Well, they don't think about, is this dollar being spent to progress the organization towards its mission? As your example of the travel internationally um, is a perfect example is, can you look at it at the end of the year when you're putting together next year's budgets and say, did spending this $50,000 progress us towards our mission this year? And if not, why not? Because that doesn't necessarily mean it should be cut, but it should be questioned. Right. That's all question. Now, it's up to you to defend it. Eric, this goes back to my section on staff development. Mm -hmm. See, I pour into my directors. That's who's really got to enforce it. Mm -hmm. So that saying you just said, Eric, it drives me crazy. I tell them, just because it's always been done that way doesn't mean it's the right way. And so I always tell my staffs, specifically my directors, once you build your director level, hopefully they have the same mindset shooting for the same goals. Nine times out of 10. So they have to question their staffs, not only themselves, because they're pretty much new at most organizations. Taking this now, you've gone through staff development, board development, community relations, financials. How do you avoid the burnout? You know, that, that ultimately becomes the thing is there's only so many hours in the day. Physically, we can only do so many things before we just feel that burnout and need to kind of step away. What are you, what are you looking at there? Uh, how do you avoid burnout? I don't think you can is how do you deal with burnout? Because most leaders in the museum at the top, you know, the CEO, the president, executive director, you never turn it off. You go to sleep thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You're at work doing it. So you really never shut down. And my advice to uh, leaders, and then the other part is not only you just working, you are constantly under the gun from your board on their demands. You're constantly under the gun as that leader from potential donors, the community with their demands. So what you have to do is find your space. And what I do, my burnout, it happens. And how I recharge is I barbecue. You got to find that hobby. And mine is barbecue. I mean, I may work six weeks in a row, meaning six days a week. My body, my mind, doing this enough, you'll know when it's time to take a step back. You have to have faith and confidence in your leadership team that you can step away. Burnout comes when you can't trust that leadership team. You have to be there. And if it's that point, you're going to burn out. It happened to me in one. That's why I retired. Quite honestly, I was burnt out. I had a great deputy, but the amount of what we were going under, it, it just wasn't. It made me realize enough's enough. When you have to go into these institutions, and I don't, Eric, you know, I lift weights and I lift a lot of weights, yet even at my age, you can't walk around <laughs> with that kind of weight on you all the time. And it got to the point, take these weights, I'm done. And that's how I ended up in Nimble Strategy. I just convinced myself, going into these institutions to turn them around, Eric, it takes a heavy toll on you personally. Literally, I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to have a heart attack, actually. It got that bad. The amount of stress turning an institution. We turned that institution around, literally, Eric, in 18 months. 
that was a lot of hard work by a lot of people, but it all rested at my feet. And so, but generally, Eric, for burnout, my guy, I cook, I go to the gym, I get my time and you have to, you cannot, as hard as it's going to sound to your listeners, you cannot do this 24-7 nonstop for 365 days. You got to find what works for you that you shut down. Eric, my wife even tells me, do you ever put that phone down? I have never put, I have never stopped working. I don't know if you experienced it with our time together. I am constantly, and it's been, Eric, what people have to understand, I want you to listen and understand, it's not just work, because you also have a life. You got personal problems. I mean, you got all this stuff on you. And if you don't find your way, it'll kill you. And that museum or that nonprofit is going on with you or without you. Oh, it's too bad they passed. Who we got on deck? And you didn't kill yourself because of your passion and your dedication. And the world's going to keep on going. So I want to be here a while. Well, kind of with all this said, then we talked about staff development, board development, community relations, financials, avoiding burnout. You know, what do you see changing in in transitional leadership? You know, are there resources that people can use as they kind of go through those transitions? Is there anything that you've kind of fallen back to? I mean, besides your barbecuing Um, (laughs) and, you know, that you feel like are good resources for people as they go through these transitional leaderships, because there's the leader going through it all, but there's also the staff underneath them, the board above them. There's, there's all these people that are a part of a transition you know, what do you see as beneficial for those groups? What, what Eric, uh, that's a great question. And what I see as the future, we'll always be here. The so-called fixers, this transitional, either under great conditions, you can have a 30-year president who's done nothing but knocked out the park besides a step down. There's always going to be that transition. My advice, and where do I see the future at? Because you're not going to get away with transitional leadership is your people. Those are the, and when I say people, it's two sets. The main one, as far as the job goes, is your senior leadership team. You have to be lock stock with your senior leadership team. They don't have to love you, but they have to respect the work you're doing. If they're not going to respect you, your work and your vision, Get rid of them. I don't care how much money they brought in because they will become a nuisance to you. So what you as a leader have to do is eliminate the barriers that you have control over. Meaning, if you have a strong leadership team, if you got five directors or VPs or whatever your organization calls them, make them the best you have. They may not be the best in their field. And I'm not saying be yes people because I don't allow yes people in my circle but make sure they're good at what they do and understand what, and they're uh, trying to achieve the same goal you have been hired to lead them to. Not what that director, because they didn't hire that director to lead. So my whole point is build your senior leadership team. Eric, if I had to shut down an institution for cost-saving measures, those directors are the last ones I'm losing. Because those directors can sell tickets. They will rent that facility. They'll clean toilets if need be. Those are the hardest ones to replace. If you have your sick, it will relieve you of so much pressure. Eric, I wouldn't burn out probably if I could walk into an organization 
and had the top, the leadership team that I want, because that's going to take, you don't have to deal with that day to day because you can go out there and deal with the board. You know, you're removing that barrier. So, and then most importantly, and this is not a plug for nimble strategies. There are so many agencies and, and, and people like you, Eric, nimble strategies. This is not a plug. I mean this, but I've lived it and I believe it to my core. There are organizations, not just nimble strategies, but there's other organizations that people need to tap into. They can make your life so much better. If it's nothing, Eric, I won't even say their name. There was this consulting group that was for executive, it called it, it was a round table like thing. And it was four different places around the country. It was a place for executive directors to go be with other executive directors four times a year basically have a vent session to know you're not in it alone. They, the consultants, they walked us through different scenarios. It was a very good program, but to me, the bottom line was I'm not alone. I have people to talk to and get ideas of how they dealt with it. So the, one of the things, like I was saying, tap into different agencies such as Nimble Strategies. I'm serious, Eric, but I hope people hear this and go check out all the great services you provide. I will plug Nimble Strategies one this last time. If I ever have to have a strategic plan amongst all the stuff that Nimble does, I won't do anything and I will recommend Nimble Strategies. The depth of work that Nimble Strategies put in to a strategic plan, I in 20 years of doing it, I've, I'm telling you, Eric, we've had this conversation. It's the most thorough operational ready to use strat plan I've ever seen. And I got to do those for two and a half years with you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, thank you so much, Dion. We we really appreciate it. And we really appreciate all you're doing with uh NAMAM. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's it is a great museum and it's a great organization as well. And while we were sad to lose you, we felt like it was a good opportunity for yourself and your family. Yes, sir. Uh, so with one day knowing that you'll come back. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Too long. <laughs> with that said, is there anything else you'd like to share or any other thoughts that you had? No, Eric, thank you, man, for giving me this opportunity, man. I love you, my brother. I mean, you know, I'm here for you. anything you ever need, bro. Thanks, Dion. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Five. Subscribe to our channel and make sure you catch every episode of The Five and reach out to Nimble Strategies today for help with your nonprofit.